Well, today we will resume our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Just one note of correction from what's in the bulletin. Uh, we will be looking at verses 1 through 12, not 1 through 17. We will look at 13 through 17 next week because the baptism of Jesus uh, is of important enough consequence that it should be looked at separately from the broader ministry of John. So please look with me at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree Therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you. For this your word, we thank you for your servant having come and served as the forerunner of Christ to prepare the way. We ask, O oh God, that you would be with us even now, that our hearts would be fertile ground for the work of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray this, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, today we resume our study of Matthew after a quick little detour last week for Christmas. Uh, but as we commence verse 1 of chapter 3, we are turning the page, so to speak, and we are introduced to someone who spoke after a long, long silence. 
For 400 years, there had been no prophetic voice in Israel. There was relative turmoil, relative chaos, relative upheaval. For 400 years, though, no voice to the people, illuminating the next step. After Alexander and after the Seleucids and the Ptolemies had had their warfare and Israel had been caught in the crosshairs, after the Hashmonean dynasty had been usurped by Herod the Great, and he was in power by decree of Roman Senate, but seen by virtually everybody as a foreign outside infidel, he nonetheless sought to build the esteem of his people or attempt to govern in some way. And so he threw them a bone and he built the temple. The temple whose foundation stones remain today and are known to us as the Wailing Wall. But most Jews understood it for what it was. The vain attempt of a godless, wretched man to curry favor. The Romans had emplaced the Sadducees, the political religious party that was favorable to their rule while being soft on the word of God. So the liberals controlled the organized religion and infidels controlled the government. And the entire system of organized religion stemming from and flowing through Jerusalem, the capital, was seen by many as corrupt. This disgust on the part of many led to various separatist groups, one of which we know of, and they're famous because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, their group was called the Essenes. They were a hyper-conservative group of separatists who took the same theme verse as John the Baptist for their ministry, leading many to think that John the Baptist was perhaps associated with them. We don't know. It's not really relevant. But what is relevant is that into the milieu in which Jesus came, there was just a huge amount of inner tension Everybody perceived that what was up top was corrupt, but yet people were powerless to do anything. So much angst, so much anxiety. It was bound to come out in something, and eventually it did in the rebellion of AD 66. But right here, right now, people are wondering, where is God in all this? Now, known to us, he had sent an angel a few years before to announce this coming day, but but that was quiet. The public scene had seen nobody for 400 years. That's a long time. And then a voice. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are introduced to a man named John the baptizer, or John 
the Baptist, or simply the baptizer. And he is the last prophet of the old covenant. He is the hinge on which the covenants turn, so to speak. In a few chapters, Jesus will reflect upon him and refer to him as the greatest who had ever been born. We'll save that rationale for then. But understand, he was of singular importance. His ministry of calling people to repent was so popular at the, at the local level, at the grassroots level, that many years later, perhaps decades later even, Paul, when he's in Ephesus, in Acts 19, he encounters disciples of John the Baptist there. And he teaches them the full gospel and they, and they get born again. So John's reach was far and wide. John was viewed as some, by some as Elijah reborn. Why Elijah? Of all the prophets he could have been named after or considered or reckoned to be the second coming of, why Elijah? Well, Elijah's place in redemptive history was such that he was not the first prophet, but he was seen as the, the, the inaugurator of the prophetic era of speaking truth to power. He had a remarkable ministry of what we would call hostility with the reigning powers that were. Uh, he was one of the last faithful worshipers of Yahweh in the north. And of course, through him, a great prophetic ministry was born by his successor, Elisha. John the Baptist comes, proclaiming a message dissimilar, yet similar, to the message of the prophets who were before. Every prophet in the Old Covenant calls for moral and spiritual reform. Everyone does. But notice how the prophets of old prophesy in such a way that they mention specific things that have gone wrong, that need to be fixed, there's an air of there's still time. Things are going to happen in the future. John the Baptist is not in the business of going through and listing out all the offenses that they've done, all their religious infidelities. His message is simple. Repent. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. John seems to be self-aware. That the time is now. That he is making way for the Lord because the Lord is coming. Indeed, he is here. John the Baptist brings a message to religious people. A message that is hard to hear for religious people. John the Baptist, in his forsaking of the center of organized religion. He was nowhere near Jerusalem. He was over by the river Jordan where, where they had crossed into the promised land. With his rejection of the cultural refinements of his day, 
understand when he's wearing camel's hair and, and a leather belt, it, it's, depicting, it's depicting a person that if you saw him on the street, you would think this is a wild person. And he was eating locusts and wild honey. Okay, he was an extreme ascetic. He wanted nothing to do with the moral pollution of what was going on in the establishment. And he had the look then of a prophet. That thousand yard stare. You would have known it. And they recognized him as a prophet. Jesus throughout his ministry keeps using John the Baptist as the gotcha to the religious leaders because everyone understood that he was a prophet. But yet despite knowing that he was a prophet, they treated him similarly to the way they treated the old covenant prophets. For example, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus makes reference to them. Hey, John the Baptist came to you neither eating, meaning he wasn't a drunk, a glutton, nor drinking, and, and, and how did you guys respond to him? You said he had a demon. So he was met with opposition, resistance, persecution from the up top religious civil leaders. And just like Elijah, he spoke a little too much truth to power to the rulers. But Elijah was able to make his getaway. John the Baptist was not. Actually, it was imperative that John the Baptist bow out in the way in which he did. Because if he had lingered on in his life, his ministry would have overlapped, drawing attention away. But John knew he had to get out of the way for Jesus to be the one solely in the limelight. And so we know what happens to John the Baptist later on. John the Baptist prepares us for the Lord. Now I'm going to use an analogy for why John the Baptist's message was important and, and even as I'm using the analogy, it's the best one I can think of, even though I know it's imperfect. All analogies fail. Okay? But here it is. Dad's coming home. You better pick up the house. Okay? Or let's transfer it to the military. The sergeant major's coming through. You best clean the barracks. Okay? We understand when someone important is coming into our zone, into our lane, that we had best represent well, lest they be displeased. You want to be in good favor with the one who has the power. Okay? So, it is fitting if a people are the Lord's and the Lord is coming, y'all had best get your act together. Don't let the Lord show up watching you hitting your sister, you know, throwing shoes at each other, arguing in the back about whose casserole is better. Uh, I mean, sh repent of your sins. Knock it off. Now, the reason I'm reluctant to use that analogy is because we think that what I'm merely talking about is beyond your best behavior, but what's inside your heart doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. But understand, the point of his ministry is that they were a wild, unruly, hearts were hard and cold and distant, and they were the Lord's people. They'd best straighten up, lest, as John the Baptist says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and the chaff 
you will cast into the fire. Whoa. The thrust in the heart of John's ministry, the message of his ministry, is repent. And understand that this word, this concept is so important that it's actually the same message that Jesus has. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more when we get to it. But understand that it's not like John's message is repent and Jesus' message is I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus has the same message, and that's important. But John's message is one of repentance. And he sees people coming to be baptized, whom he judges, he ascertains because he knows character, he ascertains that they are not there out of sincerity. For whatever reason, they're coming because they... They want to spy on him. They, they want a close look. Maybe they're trying to curry favor with the populace because we see throughout the Gospels multiple times that the religious leaders take calculated actions so as to stay in the good estimation of the people. So they're doing it, so we should do it too. Well, for whatever reason, John is not a naive person. And I think John is, is, a, is a good example of, of us using discernment. Some, sometimes we're a little, I don't know, in, in our desire to show charitable judgment, we're, we, we act naive. And John, John eschews that. He doesn't say, oh, you're coming. Well, I, I, can, I just have to hope for the best. No, he calls them a brood of vipers. These are people coming to be baptized. And he calls them a brood of vipers because he accurately knew their heart. And he knew their character. Now, here's what's interesting about calling them a brood of vipers. We think that's just an insult. That he's saying they're dangerous. No, he's not just saying that. He could have called them, you know, a bunch of, of, of jackals or something. No, by using, he's a prophet. By, by using the, the serpentine image, he's aligning them and reckoning them with the serpent in the garden. He sees these religious leaders as being of the seed of the serpent. They are therefore hostile to the plan and purposes of God and enemies to the true people of God. That is John's estimation of those religious leaders coming to him. And so then John says... Do works in keeping with repentance. If you want me to think otherwise of you, do works in keeping with repentance. In other words, repentance bears fruit. Repentance is the first part of saving faith. And we're going to unpack that. But, un but repentance, being born of the Spirit, is something that necessarily bears fruit. Which is why any biblical definition of repentance is more than remorse, regret, or feeling bad. You can, you can feel bad. You can feel remorse. You can feel regret. Worldlings can do all of that. Repentance is something more than, other than, simple remorse, regret, or sorrow. 
So when he's telling people to repent, what is he telling them to do? Well, it's one word, but it's blasted to a crowd who are coming with with diverse personal walks with the Lord, okay? So when he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, we can see that it's not just a message to them, it's a message to us. So then what does he mean when he says to us, repent? Well, Repentance can be spoken of in four ways in Scripture. Four ways. Okay? The first is, is it's, a, it, it's moral reform without necessarily turning to God. It's a desire to forsake bad behavior and live more nobly. We see this, for example, in regards to the Ninevites, whom Jonah preaches to. And the word used is they repent, but they didn't turn to the Lord. But they did recognize that their behavior, because the law of God is written on the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl. They recognized that their behavior was wretched and bad, and they repented of it. They turned away from it and desired to live a more honorable, noble life, a life consistent, more consistent with the moral law written on their heart. So that that is sometimes how it's used. But usually can... Repent is used in what we would say the word conversion. This is what I would call capital R, repent. It's a sorrow and hatred for our sin that leads us to God. Repentance is always truly turning from something to something. Okay? So when in the case of the first where it's forsaking bad behavior to live more nobly, the reason it's so temporary is the thing that they're turning to is not something of infinite goodness, glory, and power to captivate and hold the heart. The human heart cannot sit without something or someone on its throne. There cannot exist a vacuum in your soul. Something will fill it. And so when we turn, when we repent from our sins, from our idolatries, we must find, therefore, something that's going to take its place. And the only thing that can take its place properly is the Lord, which is why we were told in Acts 26, verses 18 to 20, that Paul is recounting his ministry. He's imprisoned. He's recounting his ministry and that the Lord had told him that he was commissioning him to go to the Gentiles to do what? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to the light. From the power of Satan to God. So repent then is used oftentimes in what I would call the capital R sense of a, of a definitive orientational outlook of loyalty of life from the power of sin to the power of God, from the attractiveness of the fleeting and finite to the attractiveness of the infinite and eternal. And that's a once-for-all decisive action. 
You can only capital R repent once. You either are born again or you're not. And once you're born again, you don't get reborn again. But we do begin a Christian walk. And so the word repent can also be used. It's used in the prophets to refer to what we would call progressive sanctification. And that is we all stumble in many ways. And as we go through this life and we experience the work of the Holy Spirit, we are, we, we've, made a, we've made a determinative commitment to Christ. We've turned from sin to the Lord. But yet in my daily experience, I still sin. And as I'm made aware of that, I'm called upon to repent. To turn to the Father and say, I have sinned against you, my Lord. Forgive me. It's not that I'm seeking to be reconciled positionally to my Father. I I, I am. But, But I'm called to live righteously before Him. And I have unrighteousness lurking in my heart. And for that, we repent. And so that's an ongoing thing. And so to some of us, the call to repent is to steadily, steadily be aware of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And don't stubbornly resist And so when something occurs and the Spirit moves and you feel the conviction and weight of sin, take that as a thank you from the whole, thank the Holy Spirit for that, repent of the sin, and move forward in faith, love, and obedience. But repentance is also spoken of in a fourth way. And that's the way that many times we need to hear it. Repentance can refer to an occasion when a believer or even a church returns to the Lord with renewed faith and vigor of faithfulness after a season of complacency or relative disinterest in spiritual matters. We would call this returning to our first love. This is the message that Jesus had for the church in Revelation 2 in Ephesus, when he tells a church, and therefore the people in the church, to repent and do the things you did at first. Okay? So one of four ways, or a combination of all of the above, is what we mean when we talk about repentance. We need to be always mindful of the fact that as the Lord's people... We are to be characterized by holiness and by personal, sincere faith. John's words to the religious leaders are a punch in the gut to nominalism. They were prone to saying things about their heritage as a justification for their standing with God. Abraham is my father, we're disciples of Moses. You see these kind of things throughout the Gospels. They really did trust in their covenantal status for their own standing. A total deflection. When Jesus or John talks to them and and, and they deflect and they try to dodge the issues of their own personal walk and their personal obedience or relative faithlessness, they dodge it by pointing to their ancestors. Abraham, Moses. 
And John here, he, he lights that logic on fire. God can raise up stones to be children of Abraham. And, and in fact, this, this is, a, I would say, an echo, or, or, or it's echoed later in the words of Paul in, in Romans 2, when he says that being a true Jew is not something outward, it's something inward. You're inwardly a Jew as a matter of the heart, of the spirit. So going back to John, he's telling the religious leaders, do not think that your ancestors are going to get you into the kingdom. Now that's really important for us to take to heart because we have a covenantal theology that is beautiful and scripture-based. And our children stand in covenantal connection to the church and, and we believe they have inherited great privileges But it would be a shame if anyone were to grow up thinking that because they were baptized into a church, that that means they're okay. It's always and only ever about personal faith. Ever. In In the physical temporal realm, Yes, you can point to in the Old Covenant, Noah's sons got to stay alive because of Noah's faith. That does not mean Noah's sons went to heaven. Understand the distinction between this realm and the spiritual realm. You and I will only ever stand in the kingdom of heaven by our faith. Okay? So teach your children that the great blessings they have inherited as part of the covenant community are meant to to pave the way, to illuminate the path. But it's never the replacement of faith. Right? So John the Baptist's ministry was one of rattling cages, calling them to clean up their act, so to speak, Stop relying on their tradition. Start turning in faith to the Lord. Turn away from the actions of impiety and unfaithfulness that they had been engaging in because the king of the kingdom is at hand. And next week we will see just at hand he was. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for John the Baptist coming to prepare the way. for knocking them out of their complacency, for opening an awareness to spiritual matters, to prep the ground, so to speak, for the ministry of Jesus. We thank you for his ministry. And we thank you for the ongoing ministry that the word has, as proclaimed by faithful preachers, exposited by those men and even those women who will faithfully stand in the gap calling us to faithfulness. Lord, grant that we would trust not in our covenantal status, but rather that we would trust in the finished work of Christ as appropriated by our personal faith. We ask this in his name. Amen.